Okay, well, tonight we will end. <laughs> yes, we will. We're going to end, not the whole book. We're just going to end this first section in the book of Romans and begin the next major section. The first section we've entitled Condemnation, which runs from chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, let's just review quickly. In Romans 1, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul has put the human race on trial. He's put the human race on trial. He wants to prove that the whole world apart from Christ is guilty before God. The hedonist, which is the pagan, the moralist, and the religionist, everybody apart from Christ is condemned by God. No matter how good they might be by human standards, in the eyes of God, they are fallen sinners condemned to spend eternity in hell apart from his son, Jesus Christ. And then in verses 19 and 20, Paul moves from the role of prosecuting attorney and steps behind the bench and assumes the role of judge to give the verdict. And that is guilty as charged. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. As we said last time, guys, Paul wasn't usurping God's role as judge. He's simply acting as a representative for God in his court of law, God's court of law, uh, repeating the verdict that God has already rendered upon the human race. Paul's not coming up with a verdict. He's just relating what God has already said. He's already pronounced judgment. In fact, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God first talked about judgment and so on. So Romans 3.20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law is looked upon by different Christians in different ways. Some Christians, because they've been taught all their Christian life this realist, pounding message of how that works is evil, works is wrong, law is bad, they think that the law is bad. But the law is from God and is therefore good. Romans 7, verse 12, the law is holy and just and good, Paul says, but only if it's used in a good way, only if it's used for the purpose for which God gave it, to produce conviction of sin and ultimately to lead a person to Jesus Christ. But it's worthless as a means of making a person righteous in God's eyes. And that's the other extreme. Some Christians hate the law because they've been taught that. Other Christians embrace it and want to use it to be, well, a lot of unbelievers who go to church, I should say, uh, look at the law as God's way of, of keeping commandments so that they can be righteous and go to heaven. That is wrong. You know, there's always going to be people that uh, believe they just need a, a, a little religion, a little law to be saved and go to heaven because, you know, they're basically good. You know, they just need a little push over the wall to get up into heaven, right? But Galatians 3.10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue listen in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. If you want to be righteous, if you want to use the law to get into heaven, you can't just pick and choose. It's either you use the law to try to get into heaven, you're not going to make it, but at least be consistent uh, with your thinking. Some people think if they can violate the law of God in small ways, you know, because those aren't that important. As long as they stay away from or don't commit the big sins, as long as they don't rob any banks or kill anybody uh, or whatever, uh, then, you know, it doesn't matter if I gossip a little bit or I covet or I lust or whatever. And this is the mentality that a lot of people have. Now, when it comes to Orthodox Jews, they embrace something that a lot of non-Jews embrace. They believe that their good deeds need to outweigh the bad deeds, and if they do, they're right with God. And so I have heard that as Yom Kippur gets close, uh, Orthodox Jews will begin to do extra good things. What are they doing? They're trying to counteract the bad stuff they did all year long. But, but don't, they're not the only ones. There's a lot of people that have that scale mentality. That God's putting our good deeds on one side of the scale and our bad deeds on the other side. And if our good deeds just tip 
in my favor, I'm in. I'm in. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's what a lot of people believe. But that's not what the Bible teaches. As we're going to see, we've already talked about it. Uh, well, I'm going to hold off because I'm going to talk about it more in a moment. But let me just read to you what one author pointed out. He says, man is not only convicted by God's law, he's also condemned by that law. He is found guilty. One reason God gave the law was that all the world may become guilty before God. Verse 19, we do not have to wait until we die to find out where we shall stand in the judgment. We can know right now. Paul is repeating what Jesus said in John 3 verse 18 when he said that unbelievers are condemned already. They're not working towards righteousness. They're not going to have their day in court to hear God say, well, you know what? You weren't too, you're pretty good. Come on in. <laughs> Jesus said, look, it's over before you start. You're condemned already. The verdict of God has already been rendered and the great white throne judgment will simply be the sentencing phase of all that Paul has convicted mankind of as set forth in Romans chapters 1 through 3. Truly, man's condition is helpless, end quote. Amen. A lot of folks don't realize that, though. They don't realize that. Now, at this point, guys, we enter into the second major section of the book of Romans. The first section fell under the heading of condemnation, whereas this new section deals with justification and runs from chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 5, verse 21. The first section dealt with man's sin. This new section presents God's salvation. The first section began with, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Chapter 1, verse 18. This new section begins, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Chapter 3, verse 21. The first section told man he is lost. But in this new section, God, through the Apostle Paul, is telling us how to be saved. In verses 19 and 20 of Romans 3, the verdict is pronounced. Guilty as charged. And as such, as we've gone through these chapters, where Paul is making his case for the guilt of the human race, he has left us speechless, that every mouth shall be stopped, right? He's left us speechless and defenseless. But instead of being cast immediately into hell, which we deserve, he begins this new section with the words, but now. But now. You're guilty sinners. You cannot change that. You can't be moral enough or good enough, quote unquote. All apart from Christ are, are lost, uh, hopelessly condemned to spend eternity in hell. But now. He takes us down to the absolute pit of hopelessness, helplessness, and despair. And just about the time that things look their blackest, suddenly he breaks in with good news. But now. It reminds us of Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 5. Let me paraphrase what Paul said. He said, Once you were dead, doomed forever because of your many sins. You used to live just like the rest of the world, full of sin, obeying Satan. All of us used to live that way, following the passions and desires of our evil fallen nature. We were born with this evil nature, and we were under God's wrath just like everyone else. But God, who was so rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, that even while we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead, for it is by his grace that you have been saved. You know, it's like uh, the little girl who fell into a well and her father rescued her. And afterward, they interviewed her about the ordeal by asking, what did you do? To which she responded, I just reached up as far as I could and my father did the rest. Likewise, Paul has just gotten done telling us that sin had caused us to fall into a deep pit from which there was no human way out. But if we will lift our hands to God in faith, he will do the rest. He will reach down and save us from this eternal fate and make us his children and give us an inheritance that will never fade away, reserved in heaven who are kept by the power of faith. You know, one of my favorite commentators, Donald Gray Barnhouse, 
said that as he was marking his Bible, he was a great guy. In fact, Barnhouse, I think, was the one who said, you should live in Romans 6 through 8. In fact, he actually said this, when you throw your Bible on the table, it should open to Romans 6 through 8, somewhere in there. Because that's how much you should be reading that section. But before he come, came to Romans 6 through 8, he did say this. As he's marking up his Bible, he said he came to this section in Romans and he drew a heart around it because he said, this is the heart of the New Testament. Well, because this section, uh, chapter 3, verses 21 to 31, is talking about how we get saved. 6 through 8, chapter 6 through 8, tells us how we walk in sanctification once we are saved. That's, you got to start at the beginning. And that's why he said, look, this is the heart of the New Testament because it's the heart of God. Uh, Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save those who are lost. That's the heart of God. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in Jesus would not have to perish and hell would have everlasting life, right? So this is the heart of God. And I see, understand where he's coming from. You know, uh, John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, attributes his conversion to these very verses in Romans that we're studying. Now the passage before us, again, chapter 3, verses 21 to 31, deals with the righteousness of God. Understand that when we talk about the righteousness, I talk about righteousness, I should say, as it relates to man, to us. It simply means the state of being right with God. Now God's righteousness, uh, not like he's right with himself. I guess you could say that. Um, he's perfect. He's sinless. In him is light. There is no darkness in him at all. He's totally righteous. When you apply that to mankind, though, we are not righteous. We're going to talk about that, okay? But when you're talking about righteousness as, as it relates to us, it just simply means the state of being right with God. Now, Paul is now going to be dealing with how a person can be right with God, which, again, is the heart of the gospel. You know, Job asked the same question many years ago, many centuries ago. How can a man be righteous before God? Job 9, verse 2. Well, Paul's going to tell us. Paul's going to tell us. And in the process, he lists 10 characteristics of God's righteousness. This is really the heart of this new section. How can I be right with God? That, that's the question of life, which means how can I be right with God, which means how can I go to heaven? People have all kinds of ideas. But Paul's going to tell us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, He's going to tell us how we can be right with God, how we can go to heaven. And in the process, he lists 10 characteristics of God's righteousness. Number one, God's righteousness is apart from the law, beginning of verse 21. Guys, first of all, I want you to understand, the phrase, the righteousness of God, in verse 21, literally means the righteousness that comes from God. That's a very important distinction. The righteousness, righteousness of God is actually, in the Greek, the righteousness that comes from God. In other words, the only kind of righteousness that will get a person into heaven doesn't come from man in the way of religion. It resides in God, part of his divine nature, and comes to us from God. This righteousness, Paul says, is apart from the law. Now, Paul uses the Greek word namas here for law. That's the common word for law, namas in the Greek. It's a word that he uses in different ways, though, in his writings. You have to be careful that you uh, look at the context carefully so, so you can properly interpret what way is he using the word law. The word law could mean legalism, ceremonial law, moral law, Old Testament scriptures, or law as a principle in general, law as opposed to lawlessness. Okay, So all of those are used by Paul in his writings. In fact, I should say this, he uses the word in different ways, and in fact, he uses it two ways in this one verse, verse 21. And from the context, it's obvious that Paul has in mind legalism. So let me paraphrase what he's saying. But the righteousness that comes from God is apart from legalism or religion. That's what he's saying. Or in other words, if you want to be right with God and go to heaven, you can't achieve that through human effort, good deeds, or acts of piety. True righteousness is apart from all of that. Keeping sacraments, lighting candles, praying the rosary, fasting, go to ch going to church, giving to the poor, etc. All the stuff that 
we as Roman Catholics did, and I'm sure other faiths uh, do similar things. But guys, the righteousness of God, and we're going to hit this really hard in chapter 4. I'll just throw it out there, get you thinking about it. The righteousness of God is not earned. It's not earned. It's imputed. Now that's a word that we're going to look at pretty closely in chapter 4. I'll give you a little preview. Imputed means to place to a person's account by faith. Let me read these to you. You don't have to turn to them. Just write the references down. Romans 3, verse 28. Therefore, Paul said, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And again, think of religion. Think of legalism. We conclude that a man, a woman, is justified by faith apart from the deeds or the works of the law. Romans 4, verses 5 and 6. But to him who does not work strive for their salvation by doing good works and, and by the way jesus if you love me keep my commandments well i'm not saying we shouldn't do good works in fact the bible says we have been saved unto good works it's just that they won't get us into heaven once you're saved the good works kick in but the good works won't bring you to a place of salvation you know that but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And he goes on, you can read the whole passage on your own. Give you one more, Galatians 2, verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Uh, guys, these are, these are just a few of the many verses we can look at in the New Testament that say pretty much the same exact thing. Uh, all the writers uh, touched on this and presented it, that um, we are not saved by our works, the works of the law, religion. We are saved by faith. As we have said in past studies, the biggest lie the devil has ever fed the human race is the lie that you get to heaven by being good. In other words, moral and religious, that kind of thing. Or in other words, that heaven is a, re is a reward for deserving people. Guys, that is the lie of religion. As we have said numerous times, there are really only two religions in the world. Ready? You know it. The religion of human achievement and the religion of divine accomplishment. Every religion and religious system in the world apart from Christianity falls into the category of human achievement. In other words, what we, what we do for God to earn his favor, and if the person believes in the God of the Bible and in heaven, what they do to earn a place in heaven. Only Christianity, which again is not a religion, it's a relationship, you understand that. Only Christianity falls into the category of divine accomplishment. In other words, what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ, to offer us a place in heaven as a gift, as a gift. The world says human achievement is how you're made righteous in the eyes of God. But God says my righteousness is apart from all of that. My righteousness is based on divine accomplishment. It's based on what I have done for you, not on what you do for me. Of course, you all know Isaiah 64, verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing. And listen, all of our works of righteousness are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. Anything that a person does in the way of good works, religious works, to offer up to God as a basis for God receiving them into heaven, God looks at that and says, in my eyes, they're nothing but defiled, bloody rags. Matthew 5, verse 20. For I say to you, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, that unless, speaking to his disciples about the Pharisees, that he had those guys in mind, the scribes and Pharisees. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we've been reading that for years. I've been saved for, you know, 43 years. I mean, how many times have we read this? We don't understand because we weren't brought up in, in, in that culture. <laughs> the, the Jews believed that the scribes and Pharisees were so holy, so righteous, 
that they had a saying. If only two people made it into heaven, one would be a scribe and the other a Pharisee. Because they were, they were a shoe in Nobody kept the law like them. And Jesus drops a bombshell on these guys by saying, look, unless your righteousness exceeds there, you're not going to even see the kingdom of heaven. Well, of course, he would go on to say that the righteousness he was talking about was his righteousness, which they could never earn, but he would give them freely if they put their faith in him. John 3, verse 13, Jesus said, Nobody has ever ascended into heaven on their own, by their own works. I think that's a pretty definitive statement. You know, there's always somebody who says, well, maybe not many, but I, I'm going to. Jesus, well, you know, nobody's ever worked their way to heaven. People have this in their minds that they can take their good works and lay them one on top of the other and build themselves a stairway to heaven. Jesus, nobody ever ascended to heaven that way. But he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Remember what Jesus said to his guys in, in John 14, night of the Last Supper in the upper room? I'm going away where I'm going. You can't follow me, but I'll come back for you to take you to be with me, that where I am, there you be also. We get to heaven through Jesus. We get to, it's only, we're in him. And so, as he ascended into heaven, we actually went with him. Paul says we've been seated in the heavenly places, right now in Christ. Of course, what is spiritual someday will be literal. Number two, God's righteousness is revealed and affirmed in the Old Testament. End of verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Guys, that's a euphemism for the Old Testament scriptures. God's righteousness is revealed and affirmed in the Old Testament. Romans 1, you're in the neighborhood, turn back to Romans 1. Here's how Paul started this epistle. Verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated, listen, to the gospel of God, which he promised before, talking about the Old Testament, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Look, the gospel isn't a New Testament truth. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. For example, Genesis 3.15, where God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. All right, talking to the serpent. Between, and between your seed and her seed. Messiah, her seed, Messiah. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So right up front, after man sinned and fell, God promised that he was going to send a redeemer. He was going to be a virgin-born redeemer. We've talked about this a lot. I'm not going to get into it again. But uh, he was going to send a redeemer who would be virgin-born. Had to be. Because if he wasn't virgin-born, if he had an earthly father, the sin of Adam would have passed into his life, into him, and he couldn't have died for sinners. So the idea is it was very important that, uh, that he be virgin-born. And, and as we have said, theologians have called this the first place the gospel is mentioned in the scriptures, the Proto-Evangelium, Latin, right? Uh, Genesis 3.15. Later on in Genesis 15, verse 6, uh, we read about Abraham, and he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So salvation by faith. Habakkuk 2, verse 4. The just shall live by faith. And I'll give you one more, John 5, verses 39 and 40, where Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament now, because the New Testament wasn't even written at this point. Talking to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you refuse to come to me that I might give you this life. So he's referencing the good news that saves how a person gets to heaven. It's all throughout the Old Testament, but they weren't seeing it. Well, their eyes were blinded because they were so into themselves and their pride was keeping the law. They thought they were so righteous already, um, and they couldn't see what God had put all throughout the Old Testament. You can also read Genesis 22, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, verses 1 to 9, and so on. On and on it goes. And so once again, guys, the gospel isn't a New Testament truth. It goes all the way back 
to the Old Testament. There are Christians, though. Now, I need to stop, spend a couple of minutes on this. There are Christians who believe that there are two Gospels. We, we mentioned this briefly on Sunday. There are Christians who believe there are two Gospels. The Gospel of the Kingdom meant for Israel, one Gospel for the Jews, and then the Gospel of Grace revealed by Jesus to Paul for the Gentiles. So you have people that believe there's two different Gospels. Jews got saved by one Gospel in the Old Testament. Gentiles get saved by a different Gospel in the New Testament. And they point to verses like Galatians 2, verse 7, which we were in last Sunday. Let me, in fact, turn there. I want to uh, I want to start at verse 6. But I want, I want to read to you the language again because it sounds like Paul is talking about two Gospels, two different Gospels. So Galatians 2, starting with verse 6. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. So they went up, up to Jerusalem to settle a dispute. Do the Gentiles have to be circumcised, keep the law of Moses? Do they essentially have to be Jews first before they can be saved? So Paul took Barnabas, Titus, they went up to Jerusalem, and he met with the, uh, the other apostles there in Jerusalem. And they presented this. Uh, you can read about the whole deal in Acts 15. Verse 7, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for you worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised of the Jews, also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me by the Lord, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews, to the circumcised, uh, with the gospel. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. And so the language here sounds like Paul is talking about one gospel for the Jews and one for the Gentiles, two different gospels. Let me read you what one author said with regard to this. You can Google this and do your own research, okay? Because uh, you're going to run into people who believe this. So this one uh, author said this, and I quote, he said, are there two gospels, the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of grace? In short, no, there is only one gospel, but there are different aspects that are emphasized depending on when the message is given. Matthew 4, verse 23 has the first mention of the gospel. The word gospel actually appears in Matthew 4, verse 23 for the first time in the New Testament. William MacDonald, in the Believer's Bible Commentary, writes well on this, stating, and I'm quoting MacDonald now, while there is only one gospel, there are different features of the gospel in different times. For instance, there is a different emphasis between the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel of the kingdom says, repent and receive the Messiah, then you will enter his kingdom when it is set up on the earth. The gospel of grace says, repent and receive Christ, then you will be taken to meet him and to be with him forever. Fundamentally, they are the same gospel, salvation by grace through faith. But they show that there are different administrations of the gospel according to God's dispensational purposes. He goes on, is the gospel, this is the author now who wrote this, he said, is the gospel of the, of the circumcised and uncircumcised uh, as mentioned in Galatians 2, verse 7, different. Are they different Gospels? No. Please be clear on this. There is not one Gospel for the circumcised Jews and another Gospel for the uncircumcised Gentiles. The, this whole passage is not, in Galatians 2, this whole passage is not speaking of different Gospels, but simply who among the apostles was to go to whom. James, Peter, and John recognized the grace and position that God had given to Paul and agreed that he should go to the Gentiles while they concentrated on the Jews. They didn't have a different gospel to tell. They simply went to different people groups to proclaim the one and only gospel, end quote. And so, guys, people in the Old Testament got saved the same way that people in the New Testament get saved, by grace through faith. Again, Barnhouse says, the men of the Old Testament were saved by believing God's word about substitutionary sacrifice. So the whole sacrificial system pointed to Christ. And if they observed it by faith, God accounted that faith for righteousness. Let me read it again. 
The men of the Old Testament were saved by believing God's word about the substitutionary sacrifice which was slain on the altar. It was a picture of the death of Christ the Savior, and God counted their faith no matter how uninformed it might have been for the righteousness which they did not have in themselves. On down into the future, to the end of time, God will save men still on the basis of faith in the grace manifested when Christ gave his life for us on the cross, end quote. So guys, someone has said, well, some people have said, well, how did, how did they get saved in the Old Testament? Christ hadn't died yet. If somebody has said, people in the Old Testament were saved uncredited, so to speak, until Jesus came and died on the cross to pay for theirs, uh, for their and our debt, and say, saying from the cross, Jesus did, it is finished. The Greek is tetelestai, which could be translated paid in full. So God made them promises. Way back in Genesis 3.15, he was going to send a redeemer who would destroy the, the devil's authority. The, he would crush the serpent's head. This would be a, a, a virgin-born redeemer who would then, you know, uh, the serpent would bruise his heel, speaking of what he suffered on the cross, but it would not lead to his ultimate demise because we know three days later he arose from the dead. But God had promised not only the Jewish people but the whole world who would listen that they were going to be saved from the fate of the fall by a redeemer and gave them the sacrificial system to point to that Lamb of God who would come eventually. So all the sacrifices they offered God, they offered in faith. And God accounted that faith. Looking forward, we look back at the cross. They were looking forward. But the same cross saves all of us. Old Testament, New Testament, and so on. All right, number three. God's righteousness is received through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 22. God's righteousness is received through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, guys, I understand. You have been studying this doctrine for years. Some of you for decades. Remember now, Paul is writing to the first century Greco-Roman world. And they had a lot of paganism. And in paganism, often people would die for their gods. They would be sacrificed. And it was an honor for many of them to be sacrificed for their god. But, but the Greeks and the Romans, they had a saying. They believed the gods were apatheia, which is where we get our word apathetic from. They didn't care about human beings. They tolerated us. You better appease them or else they'll get mad at you. You don't want that. But they didn't love you. They put up with you because you were inferior. You were, you know, they were, they were gods. And here comes Paul and others preaching a message how that God, the true and living God, so loved the world that he died for sinners. Now, guys, think about that for a second, how revolutionary that was as a concept. And now Paul is presenting to them, after proving the whole world is sinful and lost and condemned, they have no hope, there's, there's nothing they can do to change that condition. And Paul says, but now, God has intervened. God has come to the rescue. And let me tell you how this works. See, you've got to put yourself in Paul's shoes and who he's addressing. God's righteousness, number three, is received through faith in Jesus. You can't earn it. You can't be religious enough to, to earn it. But it's a free gift. Received through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 1 verse 17. For in the righteousness of God is revealed. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. It's always faith. Romans 4 13. For the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law but through the righteousness of faith. In Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said, Faith is believing that Christ is who he said he is, that he will do what he has promised he will do, and then expecting him to do it. That's faith. Now, guys, when it comes to faith, very important subject. There's two kinds. Set aside practical faith. I'm talking about when it comes to salvation. There's two kinds of faith. Saving faith, and then there is non-saving faith, or what some would call head knowledge. John 2, 
John 2, let's pick it up in verse 23. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. Oh, wonderful. When they saw the signs which he did. Oh, wow. Holy Spirit's moving. Look at all these people getting saved. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. He had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He knew. A lot of their faith was not genuine faith. John 8, verses 31 and 2. As he spoke these words, many believed in him, but he knew. He knew that not all, quote-unquote, faith was saving faith. So he says to them, verse 31, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Greek word means truly. Truly my disciples. Not everybody who goes to church and quote-unquote follows Jesus or believes in Jesus is really going to go to heaven. Uh, all you got to do is read Matthew 7, verses 21 to 28. Many will say to me on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and, and do mighty works in your name and, 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 and so on and so forth? He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And that's the key, practicing lawlessness. Christians saved by grace can fall into sin, but we can't live habitually in sin. Maybe for a period if we backslide. But eventually, we're going to want to get things right with God because the Spirit of God is going to be working on us like he did with David. Read Psalm 51, Psalm 32, how the Spirit of God was hammering David for a year after he sinned with Bathsheba and didn't get it right with God, didn't confess it. If the Holy Spirit's really inside of you, he loves you. He does not want you living in sin because he can't bless you. It really has nothing to do with your salvation, although I don't know your heart. There are people that confess faith in Christ but don't really know it, and their lives reflect that. But can a Christian be carnal? Yeah, I believe that. Some don't believe that. I believe that. There are people who are carnal Christians. They, they, they accepted Christ, but they're still in the wilderness. They're out of Egypt, but they're not in the promised land, life of the Spirit, and so on. So the evidence of true saving faith is continuing in that faith, right? You continue in my word. You, the Greek word for abide is meno. If you, if you remain, continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. I won't have you turn to this one. I'll just say it, give it to you. We've talked about this. 1 John 2.19, where John said many have gone out from us. They, they were with our group, but they, they, they left. Um, many have gone out from us, but they were never really one of us. For if they had been truly one of us, genuinely saved, they would have stayed with us. But the fact that they have left, gone back into the world, Demas has loved this present world, Paul says. They, they've gone back to the world, proves they were never genuinely saved. Was Judas saved? Was Judas saved? He was an apostle. He was sent out with the, with the other 11. Uh, he, he no doubt worked miracles and preached the gospel. I'm convinced people got saved through his ministry. Was he saved? No. Jesus said it. Um, he went to his own place, son of perdition. John 13, I, I have said this to you because you're clean, but not all of you, for he knew which one would betray him, and so on. You can look good as a Christian, and uh, look so good you got everybody fooled but God. The firm foundation of the Lord stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. He knows the heart. You know, you're not fooling God. You're just deceiving yourself. That's what the Bible says. It admonishes us in more than a couple of places. Examine yourself to make sure you're really saved, that you're really in the faith. You don't want to assume you're in the faith because you have some Jesus head knowledge and you go to church once in a while or whatever. You don't want to stand before him on the day of judgment and hear him say, I never knew you. Depart from me. You can't repent then. It's too late. Turn to 1 John 2. Now, we've read this before, but let me read it again because we're talking about people who have saving faith and those who do not. I don't have time to get into Matthew 7, verse, verses 24 to 26, I believe, 27. 
where, you know, Jesus actually gives the litmus test for, you know, we'll say two people go to the same church. They both hear the same word. One builds his life on the rock, the other on the sand. What does that mean? Jesus said, the person who hears my word and obeys is genuine. Do we always obey perfectly? No, we don't. But, but that's the general pattern, right? Uh, they built their house on the rock, on obedience. And when the storms, the floods, the rain come, it's judgment. You're, they're going to be spared because they built their faith on the rock. Jesus Christ, but obedience to Christ. And the guy who built his faith on the sand, he heard the word, but he didn't do anything about it. Some people think that just by going to church and hearing the word is all they need. Uh, what did James say, or was it John? Don't deceive yourself. Just because you're a hearer of the word, you've got to be a doer. Because that proves your faith is genuine, right? You're not working towards your salvation. It just proves that if you have saving faith, it's going to bear fruit. Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. The fruit is the, the, the works that we do for him, for him once we're saved. But 1 John 2, verse 3. Now, by this we know that we know him. Okay, John says, hey, look, this is how we know we're Christians. If we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him, he saved, ought himself also to walk just as he, Jesus, walked. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they what? They follow me. That's what John is saying. If you're really born again, you're going to want to obey the commandments of God. Again, not going to earn you salvation, but it's going to be an evidence that you are saved. All right? Number four, we'll finish with this tonight. God's righteousness is available to all who believe. End of verse 22 and verse 23. Let me read them to you. Verse 21, Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is, re is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For there is no difference. One pastor put it well. He said, that is the wonderful point of Romans 3.22. All those who believe will be saved. Because in God's sight, there is no difference, no distinction. Just as everyone apart from Christ is equally sinful and rejected by God, everyone who is in Christ is equally righteous and accepted by Him. Even the foremost of all sinners, as Paul called himself in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, was not too wicked to be saved. Look, the fall has put us all on an on a, on a equal field. And what Paul has tried to do in the first section of this book was to destroy man's confidence in his moral goodness. Oh, I'm moral. I know I'm right with God. Or his religiosity, whatever religion he's a part of. What Paul is telling us is that, look, you, you may be better than another human being in the things you do or don't do. But in God's eyes, we're all on the... It's a level playing field. We're all sinners on our way to hell. And the only way to change that destiny is to believe. And that goes for everybody. Because there's no difference. There's, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The word sin is a Greek word that literally means to miss the mark. It was an archery term for hitting the bullseye on a target. And here, guys, in Romans 3.23, Paul says that all have sinned. In other words, all have missed the mark, all have missed the bullseye. Of course, the next question is, what does the mark or bullseye represent? Well, we're not left to guess because Paul goes on to tell us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, and listen, fall short of the glory of God. So what is the glory of God? We've got to pick this apart to see, to understand what he's getting at here. What is the glory? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It's perfection. You say, well, yes, but perfection with regard to what? The perfection that Paul is referring to in Romans 3, verse 23, is perfectly keeping God's righteous standard as set forth in his divine law. 
In the Old Testament, God's law consisted of 613 commandments. To break any one of them was to miss the mark to sin and to be guilty before God. Well, let's not deal with, obviously, all 613. You might be prone to think, you're going you're gonna to do that, aren't you? Gonna, no, I'm not going to do all 613. Let's just limit ourselves to the 10 we're most familiar with, the 10 commandments, not the 10 suggestions, the 10 commandments. In that regard, being good in the eyes of God means hitting the mark, which is sinless perfection, all day, every day. Now, I'm, 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 I'm saying this, um, and you understand. If a person could live a perfectly sinless life from childhood till they die, they're still born with original sin passed on from Adam. So they're done before they start. We, we understand that. But let's just hypothetically. Because some people think, well, I, I, I think I've done that. Okay. Well, I want to be standing with my popcorn and soda on the Day of Judgment. I want to hear what the Lord has to say with, about that. But it's all about keeping perfectly all the Ten Commandments of God your entire life without fail. Guys, you know, and let me use the illustration I've used before. These commandments are like the wooden boards that make up the hull of a ship. It doesn't matter if most of these boards are there. If one is missing or broken, that ship's going down. The same is true for the person who tries to get into heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments. Now, at this point, people say, well, I, I keep most of them. Well, it doesn't matter if you keep most of them. If any commandment is broken, even once that person is sunk, condemned. Most people don't realize this. Most people believe that if they just live a decent life and the scale tips in their favor even a little, that they're going to get into heaven. That is absolutely untrue. James said, in James 2, verse 10, for whoever shall keep the whole law, so you're working to keep the law, just hypothetically. If a person all their life was able to keep all the law, but violated one, a lot of people would say, well, that's not bad, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just one time. Surely God will let me in. James is telling us that if you try to get to heaven by keeping the law, Ten Commandments, and you live your whole life, keeping all of them, and on your deathbed you break one? You're a lawbreaker. See, that's how God sees it. The, the law has to be completely intact in a person's life to save them. They never violate it one time. In thought, word, and deed. Right? It's not just you haven't committed adultery in your life. Have you lusted? I've never murdered anybody, the Pharisees would say. Have you hated? This is what... Jesus did what he gave the Sermon on the Mount. He brought the law, which the Pharisees and scribes had dragged down so low they thought they were keeping it. He elevated it back to a place of impossibility. It was never intended to, to be used to try to, to try to get you into heaven. It was used to show you there's no way you could keep this law for righteousness in the hopes that you would say, I can't do it, Lord. Is there another way? Jesus steps forward. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You want to get to the heaven? When I get to the Father, you got to come through me. And this is why, and we're done. Let me just say this. This is why Paul calls the law a curse. A curse. It's because it makes salvation dependent upon a person's keeping all of it without fail. In other words, the law demands moral perfection. Moral perfection from a person to gain access into heaven. Um, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Can I use my... Grand Canyon illustration, one more time. A few years ago, we went as a family to the Grand Canyon. I had never been there before, and i got to tell you, it's an impressive hole in the ground, okay? <laughs> and you, you get on bus, a bus, and it takes you to different rims where you overlook the canyon from different directions. And this one rim, the guide said it was 26 miles from where we were standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, 26 miles to the other side. I started thinking about that. Let's say one side is where we are right now, and 26 miles away is heaven. And if you could jump the Grand Canyon, if you can jump 26 miles, you've made it. Now, you know how that works. 
There's all kinds of different people, right? You have your Olympic long jumpers. And they train, and they train. And I don't know what the record is anymore. It was 30-some, 31 feet years ago, and I used to watch the Olympics. But let's say it's 35 feet. You get a guy like that who's an Olympic long jumper, and he takes a big running start and jumps and gets 35 feet out, and then he falls. I would call that falling far short. I get a guy like me. I'm going to try it. I'm going to take a running start, probably triple. Uh, you know, and, and just fall right into the thing. My point is there are people that are better at jumping longer than others, just like there's people who are more moral than others. But we all fall far short of God's perfect standard to get to heaven. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, nobody can be good enough to get to heaven because you have to be perfect. And there's only one man who has ever lived who was perfect Jesus Christ and the good news is if I will put my faith in him he takes my sins on his cross pays for them and imputes to my account through my faith his righteousness we'll have a lot more to say about that in chapter four but you know guys we've gone out into the streets before and asked people you know you bump into them you say can I can I ask you a question if you were to die tonight, would God let you into heaven? And they must almost always say yes. And when I press them on that, why do you feel that way? Well, I'm a good person. I know I'm not perfect, morally speaking, but I, I think I'm good enough to get into heaven. They have bought into the devil's lie that if you're not as bad as someone else, you're good. And that makes you eligible for heaven. No, it just makes you less of a sinner than him doesn't make you like Jesus who's perfect. And it's only the righteousness of Christ that God accepts up into heaven. And so the only way I can get there is if I'm in Christ, who will take me to be with him, right? So we'll leave it there. And uh, God willing, we will pick it up next time. And we're, we're going through these just one at a time because even though you guys know this, it's good that we pick it apart to see exactly what Paul's doing where he's going. And, and so that's what we've been trying to do. We'll pick it up next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us truth with regard to what it takes to get into heaven. It takes your righteousness, a righteousness that comes from you. And you sent that righteousness to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And if we will put our faith in him, he will put his righteousness to our account. And we'll get to heaven not because we deserve it, because Jesus is deserving, and we're in him. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.